Welcome to episode 314 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. For you, there's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. You know, here's something we haven't done in a while. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am also good. Hence ends our small talk, because we've got a lot to talk about We do on this lovely little episode. And I think it's a topic that at some point has come into the minds of most Christians, especially as they've journeyed through life. And there is this thing where many of God's dear people are frequently afraid that on account of their own weaknesses or simply the power of our combined spiritual enemies, that at length, we're going to make a shipwreck of our faith and we're totally going to fall away. So let's say you were presented with a test in front of you. And one of the questions was, how does the Christian come in faith to the end of their journey? And the answer choices were something like, is it A, preservation? Is it B, perseverance? Is it C, persistence? Is it D, some combination of the three, or E, is there not enough information <laughs> to make an appropriate choice? So we're going to get there on in this conversation today. But of course, we've got a little business to take care of beforehand. And that is, it's not an episode. It's not a conversation if we're both not affirming or denying something. So That's what true. are you affirming with on today's episode? So um, as the listener who's been with us for any amount of time knows, we're huge fans of Logos Bible Software. And they recently released version 10, which a lot of times when you get like a major version number update for really any software, whether it's your Microsoft Office suite or Logos, a lot of times you are kind of like, should I spend the money to upgrade to a new version or should I just use keep using the old one? The answer for Logos 10 is absolutely 100% you should spend the money to upgrade to the new version. So I'm going to be trying to put together kind of a full feature review of Logos in general and focusing on Logos 10. But one of the most significant sort of updates, upgrades that they've got in the new version is um, they've taken their speech-to-text engine, which was available on the desktop um, program, you could almost always turn on speech to text and get like a robot voice to read whatever theological treatise you're looking at to you. They've m migrated that now. So it's accessible at very least in the iPhone, uh, the iOS version. I've heard some mixed reports about whether it's available on Android or not. But basically, you can now take any English resource that you own in Logos, and you can have the system read it to you. And the text-to-speech is actually quite good. It's still a little bit robot voicey, but I actually find if you listen to it at two times speed, it's about the right pace, and it actually kind of covers over some of that robotness, some of the seriness of the uh, of the robot text. They have a couple different accents. I listen to it in sort of like high British English, which is nice. It sounds like uh, J.R. Tolkien is reading uh, like Calvin's Institutes to me or the King James Bible or something like that. But I would definitely, if you, uh, I think you probably get the speech to text engine in iOS, regardless of which package you own. So you can check out the speech to text. Uh, it, it really is a game changer. Like I think, there's so many books that I want to take the time to read, and I just don't have the time to sit down and put eyes on on paper, on, on screen in this case, and actually read through them. But there's all sorts of times that I'm driving to work or I'm holding the baby and walking, you know, trying to walk and get him to go to sleep or something. I could put in a pair of headphones and listen to a book. Um, 
And it, it actually, they've changed it now too. So the chapter is listed and you can see based on how long the chapter is and how, what rate of speech you have the text to speech going, how many minutes are left before the, the text to speech finishes the chapter. So you can actually like time out how much time you need to listen to a given chapter or section of a text. So check it out. I, this is, this really is just like a game changer for me. It's huge. I, I for so long wanted this feature and then all of a sudden it was here and they didn't even really advertise it, which was pretty, pretty sneaky on their part, but I'm pretty Pretty excited to recommend it. Logos does such a good job at making so many things about the Bible and so much documentation literature written about the Bible just more accessible. Here's like another way that they're doing that. So yeah. it's almost like you're getting a special kind of like audacity subscription or something like you're yeah. getting all of this material now that you can put into your ears and it just makes it that much more convenient. It's yep. really super awesome. I was messing with some of this myself and it's fun. And you're right. I think after a while, if you just listen to the voices, they are approachable right. and they kind of get rounded out in your ear after a while. Anyway, listen yep. to them. You have no problem enjoying them and enjoying the text. So yeah, another way to say, listen, I'd like to get more theology in my life, more good material into my soul. And it's just another way to kind of get yourself marinating in it. So that car ride, that commute, that walk that you want to take where you're like, you know what, instead of listening to a podcast, which you should definitely listen to our podcast still, of course, but like beyond that, it's just another nice way to consume some of the things, like you said, that's on the margin. If, if you're a reader like we are, sometimes you have like this weird hierarchy or priority ranking of things you want to go through. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and there's this, sure. this stack on the side that's like, someday I'll get to this. This kind of brings that into the present so you can consume yeah. it at the same time. And it feels like you're being a lot more productive. So it's really just a fun way. And I tip my cap to Logos for making that happen. Yeah, and one of the one of the things about this that's different from like buying a theological book on Audible for example, when you buy it on Audible it's an actually read narrated like it's it's a voice actor reading the the text which is right. more pleasant to the ear, but because of the way Logos has set this up, instead of having like your standard plus or minus 30 second button or plus or minus 15 second button, if you want to rewind a little bit, the button is previous sentence, next sentence. So nice. if you're listening, because they really have tailored this to their audience that they know these are people who are listening to these texts because they're trying to uh, consume or appropriate the text and read it and listen and understand. So you can speed it up. You can slow it down. If you happen to be sitting, if you're a person who wants to take notes while you're listening to it, the screen will actually track with the sentence and it gives a little flash with each, you know, each time it hits a new sentence, or new paragraph, and you can hit the button. If you hear something you want to uh, go back and listen to again, you hit and it goes all the way back to the beginning of the sentence rather than just 10, 15 seconds or whatever the default moniker might be or the default denomination might be. So check it out. I do think it is a free upgrade in the app if you have an iPhone. I don't think that you have to purchase a new package. Uh, it's kind of hard to tell when you have a, a base package of some sort what features are or aren't available um, to people who don't have the same package. So I may not be 100% correct on that. But I do believe you don't have to upgrade to Logos 10 to get the text-to-speech. But you should upgrade to Logos 10 because there are lots of other additional features that come into play um, in the software in the web version, all of it is upgraded. So you'll, you'll hopefully you'll be seeing some of that on the website. Um, 
want to put up a full feature review. So when you go to reformbrotherhood.com slash logos, it's not just a redirect to our affiliate link. Uh, it's going to be an actual feature review and ex- explanation of why this is something that you want. Uh, and you're probably going to be hearing more about some of these features in the next coming weeks because I've been playing with the new software for a while and it took me a little bit of time to get my head around all the new things that are in place. And it really is a pretty stellar upgrade from nine to 10. So check it out. Uh, but the text-to-speech, man, it's it's just a, it's just it's a killer. game changer. Yeah, it's killer. It's absolutely killer. And here's why you can trust Tony's affirmation. This episode, not actually brought to you it's by Logos Bible Software. This is just it's true. free of charge because we're users and we yeah. like it and we're trying to make the most of it. So it's, it's just a phenomenal tool. Right yep. on. That's a good one. I know that you were texting me. So this is the thing is sometimes our affirmations, I can tell where they're going to go because we're texting about something during the week and yeah. you, you were super stoked about this. I was. Yeah, there's a there's a book that I've had in my Logos library for a while. Uh, I don't remember the exact title, but it's in it's in the same series as Scott Clark's um, Casper Livianus one, and it's about the unity of the covenants uh, and the sort of Presbyterian position of of covenant of grace, covenant of works, rather than the Reformed Baptist or the Republication view. And it's pretty technical, and it's a little bit long. And I was like, oh man, I really want to get to this. And I've been listening to it, and it's technical, but I've still been able to follow it even when I'm driving at two times speed. I'm still being able to follow the text. Um, so I can't say enough how big of a big of a deal this is for people who want to consume theological texts and actually be able to get through them because it makes a big difference if you can redeem that time you're driving or riding the bus and you know it's dark and you don't want to read or maybe sometimes you're just tired and you can you can keep yourself awake by listening to something and keeping busy but you might not be able to stay awake if you're trying to read something uh, there's a, any number of scenarios where you might need to where listening to a book may be more realistic than trying to sit down and read a book um, I think you're not going to get as much comprehension as you would if you actually were able to sit down and read but you don't always need that and sometimes you might be able to listen to something that you would never take the time to read but now you can still appropriate that into your knowledge in some sense. Right on. That's great. I love it. Yeah. What about you? What are you affirming? I'm going back to a classic with a twist and no, I'm not referring to making your own (laughs) air pop popcorn with the coconut oil. However, I think I am contractually obligated about every 50 episodes to bring that up. And so that's just an aside, just do that. And then you can write us at info at reformbrotherhood.com and say how much you really enjoyed that. But my real affirmation for this episode is I'm affirming with the book Pilgrim's Progress by John Bonnier, but part two, the sequel, so to speak, this is the lesser known, I think, part of John Bonnier's work. It came after the original and it's part two, the pilgrimage of Christiana, her children and her friends. And maybe the reason why this is lesser known is because it did come after it gets a little bit less attention. I suspect it might also be because people think it's the same story, the same things happening just yeah. to different people. And it's more or less kind of the same journey. It's not. And in fact, I think you get so much more of the richness of part one, seeing Christiana, who is Christian's wife, go through this journey herself yeah. with her friend Mercy and her four boys. And uh, especially if you're Presbyterian, I mean, this should be your jam because there's like a whole chapter in there where basically their her children are getting questioned about faith and life and it's it's all basically catechesis yeah. but it's in a story format 
So if you're Presbyterian, I don't know why you haven't already read this, but if you're looking to get yourself a copy that you think is uh, what would help you to get it more approachable, I'm going to go again with my previous affirmation, and that's The Pilgrim's Progress in Modern English. It's uh, annotated and put together by L. Edward Hazelbaker. So that's The Pilgrim's Progress in Modern English. You can look that up wherever books are sold. But the, the second part is just so good, so glorious, yeah. just as good as the first part. So I'm affirming with that, and it's actually going to come back into our conversation later. So I wanted to put it out there so that when you hear these words from John Bunyan later on, you're like, man, those are so good. Where are those from? It's Pilgrim's Progress Part 2. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good, it's a good, uh, it's a good, I don't even want to call it a sequel. It's not, it's not even really a sequel. It's not like an really? anthology. I mean, it's, kind it's of. like, it's, I know, I know like people are going to be like, well, that's the definition of a sequel. Right, it's, exactly. it's like part, it, it's like Luke and Acts. It's, it's two, it's two volumes of the same work of the same grand story. Yes. And I think this is not to say Baptists don't believe that God saves families, but the way that Baptists think about God saving families is very different than the way that Presbyterians think about God saving families. And I think this is one of those, we, we've talked about this before, where I almost think there's an instinct within within Christians that God doesn't operate um, even primarily on the individual level. That's now I hear I'm, I hear all the all of the angry Baptists typing their emails. God operates on individual levels. I'm not a federal vision theology person. I don't think that babies are automatically saved or automatically elect or anything like that. That's not that's not what I'm saying. But what we see in the scriptures is that God typically does not abandon the children when he saves the parents. That just isn't the pattern that we see in the scriptures. And so in, in many ways, part one of Pilgrim's Progress, or Pilgrim's Progress proper, I guess you might want to call it, the first volume of it, is an incomplete story in terms of how most Christians have lived and experienced their lives. Throughout the history of the church, it was tip, very much typical that Christian parents brought up kids in the fear of the admonition of the Lord, and they became Christians, and then they had kids, and then they had kids. So I can't, I, I really, really, uh, I agree with your recommendation. Even though I've never read either of the volumes entirely, I've read enough of them to understand how the story unfolds. And it really does bring about a resolution because there is this sense in the first volume or the first story of, of almost loss that Christian suffers because he does have to leave his family behind. And I think there are lots of Christians who resonate with that because they have last left family behind in their conversion, even though they may still live with them and experience them on a daily basis. They've, they've come into the Christian faith as an individual and their family members, whether it's their wife or other people in their family have not followed them. Christian or Christiana's story is not one of going with Christian, it's of following after him. It's sort of an indefinite amount of time later, but not not a huge amount of time. But it's not it's not immediate. It's not like the next day after Christian sets out, she follows after him and catches up with him on the road. So definitely check it out. I think that's a really good recommendation. Yeah, it's as you say, it's even more than that because in the opening pages of the first part, his family, including Christiana, mocks him for mm -hmm. both his concern, his fidelity and his desire to go after this celestial city. So there is like a remarkable conversion of its own kind that happens in the second part. So yeah, yeah it's all that and it's more, it's, it's certainly worth reading. And to kind of like, I would say dovetail to one other thing, let's do a combined affirmation that you didn't know was coming, but I have no oh, doubt 
that you will be on board with. And that is, I think we'd be remiss. We have to say this this time of year. We'd be remiss as the calendar starts coming to a close to turn over on this month. If we didn't say as well that you ought to, and we also affirm our pastors. So if you're looking for something to show that affirmation, maybe you could give them something from Logos or give them a gift card or maybe a copy of Pilgrim's Progress, which you talked about. But either way, what you should give them is uh, one, your loyalty and fidelity, especially, and of course, if they're preaching the gospel week after week to you and they're being a shepherd under the likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ. But don't assume that your pastor feels like they are being appreciated or supported or encouraged. That is our job in part, even as Paul says to us that they deserve double honor. So whatever you're doing right now, stop for a second, unless you're in the car, but even then pull over. And would you please send just a note of encouragement to your pastor? Or when you see him on this next Lord day, would you pull him aside and tell him explicitly how much you appreciate him and the work that he's doing? Please do not assume that your pastor is feeling encouraged on any given day. It's a very difficult vocation. And so it really isn't coming upon us to do that. So in light of that, I am so thankful for my pastor. I'm particularly and especially thankful for my original, the OG pastor in my life, who is my father, who continues to be my pastor in many ways. Even though I do not have the pleasure of attending his own church right now, he is and always will be my first pastor. And so, man, am I so grateful for him and my mother as well, who serves in that ministry alongside him. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good a good reminder that we haven't haven't landed on this month um, for all of the all of the joking around that we make about uh, the regulative principle of podcasting and all of that stuff. It really is important. Uh, it's kind of a shame that we have to have a month to appreciate our pastors. Uh, in a certain sense, it's almost a way to excuse not appreciating your pastor the rest of the time. So I guess maybe I'm denying pastoral appreciation month in that you should just be appreciating your pastor all the time. For sure. But especially this month, especially when they are probably attuned to the fact that this is the time when people should be expressing their appreciation. Uh, I actually think it can be really hurtful if you don't. So don't take that as a law, but just as a little bit of insight from uh, from someone who knows a pastor, knows many pastors very well. Um, this time of year, they're getting bombarded with all of the same emails from Reformation Heritage Book and Westminster you know, Bookstore and, and Zondervan. They're getting bombarded with all the same emails about Pastoral Appreciation Month. Um, and I think sometimes if we fail to actually act on that, then it, it just highlights to them that they are not maybe as appreciated as um, as they actually are. So absolutely tell your pastor thank you. Send him a note in the mail. Buy him a book. Uh, buy him a Logos gift card or all of the above. Look what we did there. We got both a joint affirmation and joint denial out of that, which again, (laughs) that's just free of charge because now the real denials are coming at you. So what are you denying against? I think you should go first because I have one that may be a little bit of a doozy. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's good because mine is like kind of the exact opposite of that. I'm just denying against not thinking through colloquial phrases and thinking that they impart some kind of wisdom. And this is, you can file this under old man on his lawn, shaking his fist. That's basically what this is. But I was doing a word puzzle the other day. It's one of those puzzles. I I really like these for some reason, or at least right now in my season of life, I I like these because they're changed from everything else where it's kind of like a decoding puzzle. Every letter represents some other actual letter. 
And then the goal is to figure out what the phrase is. Now, this phrase was attributed to a Chinese proverb, but I've seen it attributed to many other places. And the phrase that I uncovered was something like this. The best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time to plant a tree is today. And I think because I was actually doing this puzzle and reflecting or ruminating say more deeply or profoundly on what was supposed to be a deep and profound statement that I just became totally disenfranchised with it because I'm just thinking mathematically here. <laughs> if the best time to plant a tree was 20. So let me say this first before I just like I go exactly old man on this. I understand what the phrase means. I understand that's like, listen, it would have been great to do it a long time ago, but of course, like there's no time like the present. That's what they mean, right? Can we agree that's the, that's the meaning I of that? I think that's what they mean, but that's yeah. definitely not what it says. Exactly. Okay. So you're already checking with me. So if the best time technically to plant a tree was 20 years ago, the second best time is exactly after that, which would have been, <laughs> let's just say if we're doing it in years, 19 years ago, that would have been the second best time. It's not today because you've already made that distinction that you'd rather have the tree in all of its fullness and its glory and its maturity now than so yeah so everybody was with me I, I think there's actually a lot of phrases like this and sometimes and unfortunately and pejoratively they kind of get lumped into like Chinese proverbs in particular like as if like that pops up in a in a fortune cookie there's yeah. all kinds this is just fraught with all kinds of problems but I just read that and I thought yeah that is. That is not right. And it's super weird. And again, just just to pick another phrase that just encapsulates something like, don't give up. It's never too late. That's basically what they're saying. It's like, just yeah. do the thing that you'd like to do and get after it. But don't come at me with this, the second best time <laughs> to plant a tree instead of 20 years ago uh, is right now. That's definitely not by way of mathematical principle, the second best time in the same way that I've already, I think, railed on this podcast about, I cannot stand the phrase like I gave 110%. Would you would yeah. you leverage your energy? Did you borrow energy from a future you <laughs> so that you could get give give the effort of 110%? Like it just doesn't work. So I just thought, man, this phrase doesn't work. And I'm gonna deny against it now. I I, I rarely hear that in like conversation. Cause like where are you in a conversation? You're like, well, you know. First best time the planet tree is twenty years ago, but the second best time is right now. <laughs> like I never yeah. heard that. Well, it's like it's like if people are like it would be like if the proverb was converted to strike while the iron's hot. But if you don't strike when the iron's hot, then strike when the iron's cold. Like that doesn't make any sense either. There, there's a no. I mean, I think this is the this is the danger with um, proverbial wisdom, right? And that's what this is: is proverbial wisdom. Like it it's is. a a pithy statement that's meant to communicate something wise. And in this case, it's like. You know, you should have done something a while ago, but if you failed to do it a while ago, then it's not too late. You can do it now. That's like what it's trying to communicate. But what it actually is communicating is like, yeah, there was no purpose of planting any trees <laughs> between 20 years ago and now. But so, but, and it's like a penny saved is a penny earned. Well, no, like a penny saved is a penny saved. Like it's not really a penny earned. It's a penny saved. You already had the penny. Right. It's not say it's not earned. It's saved. Um, a bird, you know, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Well, two birds in the bush might be worth lots of things, depending on why, what the birds are for. So I, I just think it underscores like the importance of not placing too much wisdom in like the or too much weight in these yeah. sort of like truism statements, because if you if you push them too far, they just fall apart. And that that's almost always true. I, I would venture to say in a certain sense you can even do this with biblical proverbs, right? People people take biblical proverbs and they push them too far 
to the ultra literalist thing and they read them as law or as like an immutable truth. And in reality, like a biblical proverb is a general statement of a general truth, not a specific statement of a specific truth in most cases. Yes. So I, I just, yeah, that's, that's a funny, I've never actually heard that saying, but oh, really? when you said it, I immediately was like, yeah, the, the best time would have actually been if it was 20 years ago, it would have been like 19 years, 364 days, 24 right. hours, you know? Yeah, that's right. funny. I love how pedantic and and uh, nitpicky that is. It's, it's know, right listen, up my aisle. That's yeah, that's my style these days. I think actually maybe it's a call, a clarion call to just review, like you're saying, that proverbial wizard wisdom and how you apply. It. Even yeah. I like what you said because I think we talked about on this cast before. This phrase, you know, when we get into proverbs in the scriptures, this idea like train a child up in the way they are they should go. When they're old, they yeah. will not depart from it. And there are some that say you have a family member who forsakes the faith in some you know, real dramatic way. Some will call into question, well, did you really train that yeah. child properly then? Because the Bible tells us if you did, they wouldn't depart from that. And that is, like you said, a expression of general truth rather than this like hard and fast iron clawed law. Uh, this yeah. also in some ways removes, it, it grants God, it makes God kind of subject to some prid quo pro, which of course is also fraught with its own problems. So I guess this denial is, yeah, just coming in. Honestly, you should have some fun with this too, because I think once you start looking at different phrases, like the bird in the hand, two in the bush, it's funny. Again, you're getting after the sense that like to have something secure is is better than something that is unknown and uncertain, but it doesn't like we could poke holes in that by saying like, what if you can get the two in the bush pretty right. easily? Like if you can get those bad boys in your hands, then let's go after the two in the bush. What if they're yeah. slow birds? Why do we even want the birds? Right. So, you know, like it's, it's a whole thing and it's and how super many, fun. how many birds in the hand is worth a partridge in a pear tree? <laughs> <laughs> There's just so many great uh, little colloquial pieces of wisdom. And some of them are like really good and solid. They make a lot more sense. But when I saw this, I was, I, I almost thought like this was super discouraging because like, if somebody said to me, like, listen, the best, the best time to do that. Was like it's almost like somebody said like oh my goodness I'm about to retire I have no money and they're like well you know the best time to set aside your retirement was 20 years ago but the second best time is today I'd be like no it's not you just made I have like no hope now (laughs) anyway Uh, I feel like we can make this the episode we can make this a whole like not just an episode a whole podcast about tearing tearing apart these proverbial aphorisms so, someday. And if, listen, if you have them, especially in your own culture, maybe some phraseology that you think is particularly interesting of this kind of ilk that we don't know about, you should definitely send that to us yes. at info at reformbrotherhood.com. Actually better yet, here's something we haven't advertised in a while. They should call and leave a voicemail with their funny kind of proverbial wisdom. What is the number they can use to oh, leave us that voicemail? 607-444- Two seven six seven. I'm surprised Gross. I remembered it. We haven't announced it in a long time. I know. I do. You. You've got always got it in your mind, and I, I absolutely love that. All right. So, uh, save me from all of these proverbial wisdoms that I would like to poke holes in. What is this uh, grand denial that you have? So it's there's two two elements to this, right? It's it's getting to be that time of year, strangely enough, where we're starting to see Christmas lights on sale at Target and. <laughs> You know, people like my wife already has a small Christmas tree set up in her bedroom. Um, I'm denying in the broad scheme of things, violating the second commandment. And the reason I'm bringing this up now is not just because we're getting into midwinter, no season, no reason season. Um, 
There's a TV show called The Chosen, which has suspect uh, parentage in terms of the authors and producers. I actually found out there's been some talk about like Mormon connections, which I haven't been able to verify. Ooh. But the one of the main writers is actually Jerry Jenkins from um, from uh, Left Behind fame. It's his son, Brian Jenkins, I think. Um, so you know that it's going to be real accurate, right? So- <laughs> There's they're coming into the, I think the fired. third the third season uh, or third I don't know third pericope whatever they're calling it and there's this this scene and I'm not I, I would encourage you not to look this up right because we don't want to encourage you to form a false image of Christ in your head or to put it before your eyes but there's this scene where Jesus comes in and he's he's being confronted by a Pharisee or somebody some representative of the religious establishment and the person sort of pain, through pain pain voice and and whatever goes Jesus if if you don't recant of your words we'll have to enforce the law of Moses you know try to say like if you don't back down from your claims <laughs> To, to godhood we're gonna have to execute you and jesus kind of looks at him he goes i am the law of moses which which first of all of course jesus never says that and second of all yes this sounds like it's a rough paraphrase of some passage out of um out of uh the book of mormon or one of the documents from from mormonism and I'm seeing evangelicals all over the internet just losing their minds about this, right? They're just losing their minds about this particular phrase being put into Jesus's mouth when it wasn't in the Bible. And on just on first blush, none of those evangelicals seem to have a major problem with all of the other things that were put into Jesus's mouth in the show that were also not in the Bible, right? And most of those people probably did not have all that big of a problem with the various phrases in the Passion of the Christ, for example, that were not from the Bible. And this all boils down to the fact that this whole show is already a misrepresentation of Jesus in the very fact that it's a visual de depiction, it's a dramatized depiction. We're giving him, uh, they're giving him emotional qualities and, and, things that he says and does and acts that are just not given to us in the Bible. And so I'm, I'm denying on one level the, the show itself and this specific abuse of putting this phrase into Jesus's board, right? This is, even if they were trying to sort of like do a head nod to Christ saying like he's the fulfillment of the law or something like that, even if there was a, a good biblical intention behind this to represent a biblical truth, it's still the wrong way to do it. But I'm also, maybe this is a little backhanded, but I'm also denying all the evangelicals that decided that this was the place to lo lo draw the line, right? This this was the offense that they couldn't get past. Well, what about all of the other stuff, right? And we've I've said it before. The, the fact is that all of the reasons people give why they have to have visual depictions of Jesus, whether it's the storybook Bible for their kids, whether it's the Jesus film on the missions field, or whether it's the Passion of the Christ, you know, whatever, whatever visual depiction it might be, and all of the reasons people give for why this is so beneficial and so necessary, they all break down to the fact that it's a subtle denial of the sufficiency of scripture. It's a subtle denial of what uh, what Paul says when he says that the word of God is profitable and useful for equipping the saints for every good work. What what these what these films and movies and things are really saying is that the word of God is sufficient to equip 
most of the saints for most of the good work, but not the little kids because they can't really pay attention to the Bible. You can't read to them. They, you know, they need to have pictures to understand it. And not the, not the people in the mission field in, in Africa. They really need to have a film and we need to make sure that the, the person playing Jesus looks like them so that they, they can resonate with that. Oh, and not, not my Catholic relatives. They need the passion of the Christ because that's, you know, that's going to really tie into their, all of those things are to say the preaching of the word on the Lord's day, that the, the Bible, the inspired word of God, it's not really sufficient. And it's just ironic to me that people get so worked up over misrepresentation when the whole thing from the bottom up was already a misrepresentation. It didn't bother them until we crossed this particular line. And it makes me wonder like, why is this line the one that we can't cross? Why yeah. is it this one? Yeah, that's right on. It's almost like they're thinking, well, this is the Rubicon that we're crossing. Right. And I think for you and I were saying, oh, you crossed it a long time ago. Actually, yeah. this is like the outworking right. of that crossing that happened way before. So yeah. I'm totally with you on this. You know how like uh, nowadays I notice that like Microsoft has these like canned responses trying to bring like AI into your email to Outlook. And so, you know, at my work, we use MS Teams and Outlook and you might get a message and it will, and even Google actually, I think does this now, it yep. will give you kind of like a canned response. Like, you know, somebody might say to you, um, here's the information for today's meeting. And one of the canned responses might be, got it, exclamation point, or thank you, or I'll see you there. That's because there's so many times that something happens where we're just like, I just can't type the same response again. I think Twitter, the internet, life, theology should have a canned available response that just says, stop it, period. And this is yeah. one of those times where I just be like, click, stop it. That's that's all you need. And uh, let me issue a challenge on the back end of this really great denial. And that is, um, if you want to know what Tony's after here... If you want to, if you're thinking like, listen, I'm not sure if I processing that properly, that there's really no big deal with me either watching this or being a part of this. Here's my challenge. Go read John Owen's The Glory of Christ and what he says about Christ and process that in light of the, consuming these kinds of things. Just go read yeah. The Glory of Christ by John Owen. I think you'll find that thought provoking, challenging especially with respect to understanding the second commandment and in light of everything we're saying here, I mean, cause the way I'm interpreting your denial is kind of like, listen, this is what you can expect when you cross the Rubicon, which is a proper understanding of what the second commandment requires of Christians. Not just like, we're not saying that again, like these commandments are made for God's people. So I think sometimes we, like, we superimpose this idea of like, well, listen, we're talking about idols like in the Old Testament style where they're like literally creating something and you're bowing down to that. It's not just that. That's not what the second commandment is commanding right. of us. It's for God's people. So if it's for God's people explicitly, what was he kind of in a nuanced way, so to speak, demanding and requiring of us so that we might have good and proper relationship with him, that abundant life uh, temporarily so that we can appreciate that kind of beatific vision that comes with seeing God, really seeing God when we leave this life and go into the next. And John Owen says it best. So go just read The Glory of Christ. Yeah, and since we can and have done entire episodes on the second commandment and images of Christ, I'm just going to break the cycle here for a second. I said to Google, what is a 2CV, right? So 2CV is one of those phrases that's come out of the out of the reform pub and it's made its way into the broader internet. You might see two CV, three CV, and it's a second commandment violation or a third commandment violation. Well, if you ask Google what a two CV is, is it's 
a Lollapi characterful ancient citron <laughs> that has become legend produced between 14, 1948 and 1990. The 2CV was originally conceived in the late 30s as a rugged, useful, affordable car. So nice. that kind of 2CV, if you can find it, is definitely probably worth picking up. But the 2CV <laughs> that we're talking about with the Chosen, just throw – if you have it on – I don't know who has it on like a hard copy, but just like throw it in the garbage. Like take it off your list. Just don't. Just don't. Just don't. Just stop it. Just don't do it. Stop. And here's the thing. I, I want people to understand us properly. If this is something that – you're kind of hearing us talk about and you think, man, these guys are coming down hard and it sounds super judgmental. That's not entirely the tone of what we're talking about here. Cause we, you and I have a long history talking about this. So mm-hmm. it's going to come across as if like, we're just coming in hot on everybody. That's not necessarily the case. And the way I mean that is this, if this is the first time you're hearing this and you're kind of thinking, what is it that they're actually talking about? That's where I'm saying to you, investigate process, pray, yes. consider what it is to come under the second commandment. Again, resources like the glory of Christ by John Owen, I think in my life have been tremendously helpful in processing that, but it's worth processing. So where if you are coming to this and, and just kind of like blind out of the blue and saying, my goodness, these guys sound super judgmental about something that I've never even considered before. That's not really the intent yeah. here. This is an intramural conversation to some degree. And that's why I think we're coming down hard against those who should know better. Let's say yes. it that way. Yeah. And again, you can expect this kind of thing to happen when you take great liberties with displaying or representing Jesus Christ. And that starts with image making and whatever that image is, either pictorially or represented in film, it's all problematic. And the, like I said, it's almost actually our denials are not that far off. Like no. it's, it's actually this misrepresentation of an essential truth, but God gets to dictate how we consume that truth. Not us. We don't get to decide what we think is best to understand God. And I think in many ways, the outworkings of the chosen are an explicit example of that kind of really far field direction. So it is really just a matter of two words. And those words are stop it. Yeah. And conversely, if you were a person who's on the fence about the sinfulness of physical visible representations of Christ and the snafu that is the chosen has convinced you and you're getting a baseball bat to go to your church and smash out all the stained glass windows. <laughs> don't do that either. Right. So when, when, when True. oftentimes when, when we come to these convictions, which I I'm fully convinced are biblical, theologically sound, historically reformed Christian convictions that say images of Jesus, images of God are just bad news. I think we have a tendency to go like John Knox style and like smash all the statues in our town and, and like cut up all the picture books in the church. Don't do that. Like yeah, there's agreed. a time and a agreed. place to to smash idols. And most of the time this, whatever you're thinking is the time and place probably is not the time and place. Um, don't, don't do that. Just be, be gracious and gentle and bear with your brothers and sisters who may or may not have the same convictions as you may or may not be on the same trajectory to come to the same convictions as you. Um, we can, we can firmly believe that something is a biblical prohibition and that something is sinful and recognize that our brothers and sisters have a legitimate, um, a legitimate disagreement and not go like, straight up like peasants war let's destroy everything kind of style on it we don't need to go scorched yeah. earth on this with our with our congregations that we're part of yeah that's also another two words 
called Going Zwingli. <laughs> Everybody else can look look that up. That's a little inside yeah. joke right there. Um, here's the thing too, because I, I can already see the reviews popping up in like Apple Music or Apple Podcasts and everywhere else that you like to grab your podcast is people saying, oh my goodness, I can't believe they're talking about this again. But the reason <laughs> why, it's not it's not just a hobby horse. And I would say like, there are some things that are worth hobby horsing, so to speak. And this is one of them, but to your point, it's that this kind of thing continues to come up in our culture. Yeah. And so it's worth addressing over and over and over again, because we're trying to get after what is like fidelity to the scripture, what God teaches us, what it means to behold him by faith and not by sight and trusting God that whatever he gives us to understand him is sufficient and that we don't supersede yep. that by trying to say, well, I know better how to either teach my children or to teach Sunday school or to give myself faith. And I think this is like a slippery slope what we talked about before, because you can try to convince yourself that these things some have some kind of redeeming quality. And I think what we're saying is we ought to challenge ourselves to first see whether we're in the faith and where that faith is built on the right things and whether it is supported by the right things. We talked about You've talked at length and you've written at length about this and people should look it up. You know, God really manifesting himself in word and how that's like not an accident. It's not just he chose a medium and this happened to be it. And it was kind of like a random draw and word won out, but this was his specific mission. And so all of this, I think we could, we could talk about it at length. We're actually at a critical juncture now, like right now, you and I, because <laughs> this is either becoming the episode or we have to uh, quickly uh, transition. Yes. I think it's worth transitioning. I think it we can is, do it. Yes, we'll just slam it into gear. This is the last thing I'll say, and then we'll move on. Some people will make the argument that these are good, these are good, useful, profitable things. And even, even if I grant the argument that there may be some utility, and I don't grant the argument in actuality, but for the sake of argument, if I grant to you that these are things that have some sort of utility, God sometimes commands us not to utilize certain means, even though there's nothing intrinsically wrong with those means. And here's the prime example. In the garden, God commanded Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, not because there was something intrinsically dangerous or sinful or poison about that that fruit. It's not as though the apple was poison or the pomegranate or whatever, whatever physical form it took was poison intrinsically. But God said, this, this thing here is off limits. He didn't actually, as far as we have recorded, he didn't give them a reason. He didn't tell them why it was off limits. He didn't say this is dangerous. He didn't say this is going to kill you. It doesn't say this is for your good. He just said, don't eat this tree. Don't eat of this tree. Even if I grant that somehow images of Christ or, or, dramatic presentations of Jesus, even if I grant that there's utility and that they're profitable in some sense, God has said, don't eat of that tree. So so rather than, than question his judgment and question what he has given us, we should just submit to and obey his command not to make images and not to worship by images. So he's given us the means of grace. He's given us a visual representation of what Christ, who Christ is and what he's done for us in the Lord's Supper and in baptism, and we should just be satisfied with that. So all of that said, th- without making this the episode, even though I think the balance of the episode is already spent, we're already past the halfway point, um, I want to get into our topic. So Jesse... I know that I sent you this topic title without actually telling you what I intended with this topic <laughs> title, but I think you probably get it because I think you and I are usually on the same wave- wavelength with this thing. Yes, that's very true. And you noticed that in the opening, right? Where I posed 
this question, which might seem diametrically opposed. And of course, like if time hadn't already eluded us and we're well past that halfway mark because people are, are just quickly looking at their phones and seeing where we've gone or, or their displays in the cars and seeing that it's already at like 41 minutes. So I'm going to advance us. Let's pretend we did like prolegomena intro. So like everybody pick up with me, here we go. And I'm going to give to you or deliver to you this quote from the second part of Pilgrim's Progress. And in some ways, this is not exactly what the episode is about, but it does prove the point. And I'm hoping we kind of back into this quote because really this gets at the heart of why we'd even talk about this. And so very quickly, if you want to track this, you can go to chapter 27 of Pokemon's Progress. And what you're going to find there is this conversation between Mr. Greatheart, who is leading Christiana and her sons and her friend Mercy to the Celestial City and somebody of a fellow program that they meet along the way named Mr. Honest. And Mr. Honest is an old man. He's been around the block. And this is what he says. And I think this is exactly the kind of thing that we're trying to get after in terms of perseverance, preservation, all that stuff. So here's what Mr. Honest says. He says, I, he continued, I've seen some, he's talking about pilgrims. I've seen some pilgrims who seem not to be the least bit promising when they first set out to be pilgrims and one who wouldn't think they could have lived a day, which yet proved to be very good pilgrims. I've seen some who've run hastily forward and who after a little while have run just as fast back again. I've seen some, he went on, who spoke very well of a pilgrim's life at first and who after a while have spoken as much against it. I've heard some who, when they first set out for paradise, say positively, there is such a place and who, when they've gotten almost there, have come back again saying there is none. I've heard some who boast about what they would do in case they should be opposed, who even at false alarm have fled faith, the pilgrim's way and everything. Yeah. And so really that leads us into this idea of, well, what does it mean? Perseverance, preservation, what gives? How does faith, to, how do we hold faith till the end so that we don't become all of these pilgrims that Mr. Honest clearly quotes, which can we just presume at this point does happen? Do we have to go there anymore? Like that what he's saying is true. Yeah. So how do we get after this? Yeah. And I think, you know, this is a, one of those topics that I think as much as I love and appreciate and respect uh, the ministry of the late R.C. Sproul and have profited from his words and his teaching in many, many ways, and I think we all have. So so I say that to preface what I'm about to say, that I I, I in no way want to demean or or draw away from his impact or his, his profitability for the kingdom of God. But this is one of those things that I think a lot of people coming into Reformed theology who have have most of their experience of what the reformed tradition teaches from popular teachers like RC Sproul or in some senses James White or even Michael Horton on White Horse Inn is there sometimes is this distinction that's drawn between the perseverance of the saints and the preservation of the saints. And this usually right. comes up in a teaching series on the five points of Calvinism, right? So we've got total depravity, and, and usually somebody will say, like, well, total depravity is not the right way. We'll talk about it as total inability or something, radical depravity. And then they'll say, okay, well, then there's there's unlimited, uh, un, you know, unlimited, unconditional atonement or unconditional election. I'm getting ahead of myself here. Unconditional election. Ooh. And that one, usually we don't try to rephrase too much. It's pretty straightforward. It's a limited atonement, which we we qualify to death. Uh, we get to irresistible grace, and we get to perseverance of the saints or preservation of the saints. And the the point is usually hammered in that the perseverance of the saints is not. We really should think of it as preservation of the saints because it's right. God who does the preserving. The reality is 
that the Reformed tradition doesn't doesn't see a contradiction between the idea that the saints persevere and that the saints are preserved. And here's here's a, a prime example of it. This is why I think sometimes I'll make kind of a little sort of a dry humored statement that I'm a 33-point Calvinist. And what I mean is I, I hold to the the doctrine that is is taught in the system of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so chapter 17 of the Westminster Confession of Faith is titled The Perseverance of the Saints. And so section one says, they whom God hath appointed in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. And so, so the Westminster tradition, the Reformed tradition, and I couldn't tell you specifics about where to find this in the Belgic Confession, but I would be very surprised if there wasn't a similar kind of statement. I'm just not thinking one off the top of my head. The The Reformed tradition clearly places perseverance as something that falls within the activity of the creature, the activity of the saved one, right? We persevere. We 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 stay in the faith. We remain in the faith. We keep ourselves in the faith in terms of not apostatizing. However, when you go on to section two here, it says this perseverance of the saints depends not on their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father upon the efficacy and merit of the intercession of Jesus Christ. Right on. So the real answer to the question, I know we spent 41 minutes in affirmations and denials, and now we're kind of just <laughs> reading the confession to you. So maybe we'll, I'm sure we'll come back to this topic again in You're another, welcome. another episode. You're uh, welcome. I think they were they were worthwhile. Anyways, the, this contrast that you see between perseverance and preservation is a false, it's a false contrast, right? If you go back, we did a series um, that we called Free to Believe. And we've talked about this even in this this broader systematic theology series. We talk about providence versus kind of ordinary, providence versus miracles. God is always acting to bring about his will. He's actively bringing about his will in every event throughout every history. Whether, Whether that is the broad events of history, like the rise and fall of kingdoms, you know, the assassination of John F. Kennedy or the the Twin Towers being attacked earthquakes, all of those things fall within God's providence. He's actively bringing about those things as the primary cause. But there's a false contrast that happens between God as primary cause and natural causes as secondary cause that it plays into this, right? So God preserves us. It is his will that causes in a primary sense, in a primary cause sense, causes us to remain in the faith. It's the will, just like we talked about with good works. We're still the ones doing the good works, but it's ultimately the the agency of the Holy Spirit bringing those about as a first cause. The same thing is true with perseverance versus preservation or perseverance and preservation. We persevere because we remain in the faith. We make a decision. We, We consciously persist in the faith. But that is caused and supported and driven and empowered, all the different words you want to use, by the will of God flowing out of the decree of God from eternity past. Right. So we don't have to draw this false this false dichotomy, this false contrast that, again, R.C. Sproul is teaching in a particular context for a particular reason. He was trying to push against a specific kind of Arminian theology, which placed the agency entirely on, on the Christian, right? It was the Christian's agency. God didn't have any agency in it. That was what he was fighting against. But unfortunately, a whole generation of, of, of newly reformed Christians 
new new to the Reformed faith Christians came in and thought, oh, well, it's not the perseverance of the saints, it's the preservation of the saints. And that did lead to a similar kind of antinomianism, a similar kind of, it's not me doing the works, it's God doing the works, so I don't actually have to do any works, uh, that we see when we talk about good works. It's the same discussion, which is why I feel okay using, like, cramming this into like a 15 minute segment at the end of a big long affirmations and denials is that this is the same conversation we just had about good works and and the role of the human will and the human agency in good works. It is. It's really the outworking of all that stuff that we've talked about before. It's as if we're saying like to go back to the top that really the answer is it's all of the above. It's preservation equals perseverance equals persistence because all of those terms, some of them we like to appropriate for ourselves, but they're all monergistic in nature. That is, it's the single will of God making them all happen and manifest in our lives. And that's exactly what we want. It's also the exactly the way that the scripture presents them because we often forget that when God saves us, when he rescues us toward eternal life with him and implants that into our lives now, that eternal life means that I have God's supernatural grace within me that enables me to live the Christian life. His power strengthens me to run the race in a way that glorifies him and ultimately brings me to the end. Does it mean that I'm still running? Of course. Does it also mean that all the energy, all of the wherewithal, all the fortitude, the strength to continue in that race comes from God? Absolutely. That is the way it works. So it's a bit like saying we, we don't have to worry. We don't have to worry that we're making a shipwreck of our faiths if we know that God himself, by gifting the Holy Spirit to us, is the one who is propelling us forward. This is why, incidentally, that Paul says things like, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's not like the colloquialism, like to go back to our weird proverbial wisdom that should be implanted like on somebody's like an NBA player's like shoe. It's not about I can dunk over somebody else or I can physically run faster. It's this idea that God comes and saves and perseveres and persists through us. And it's it's actually, this truth is made more beautiful in the understanding that outside of God's doing those three things, that we fall apart in weakness, we become a puddle on the floor. That is true. It also comports with Paul saying that God's strength is made perfect in that kind of weakness. Now, again, I'm going to be biased here because one of the things I endeavor to do uh, for myself and for my own health is to run. So I have a strong affinity with all these metaphors that Paul uses for running. And anybody who's done any kind of running immediately recognizes that it's just incredibly demanding. And it's, I would say, more demanding in the mind than it actually is in the body. And that's because if you do a race of any kind of distance, whether that's one mile or 26, what you're going to find is at some point you become incredibly discouraged. You get to this point where you feel like you cannot go on. And this seems to me very much like life. And so without some kind of outside influence, even like in our physical body. So I ran a race not long ago with my Christian brother, Nate. Nate knows this story. He's probably listening. (laughs) And uh, we did a half marathon And uh, I made the mistake of not eating anything before this 13 point, uh, you know, one mile race. And um, we got to like mile 12 and I I was running with him. I remember saying, are you like so hungry right now? Like, do you feel like you could just like pass out and fall (laughs) over? And he was like, no, 
<laughs> I was like, I, I feel like I'm just out of strength. And in fact, I had to stop in mile 12. So embarrassing, like almost at the end, stop mile 12. But at no point during that race was I thinking like, listen, here's what I need to do. I need to make my muscles work. Like as if I'm like consciously willing myself forward, there's like almost like a, a subversive, like behind the scenes nutritional component that my, my muscles are working and they're doing that almost without my ability to think through everything that's happening there. They're carrying me forward. This is how, how God works in our lives. And if it's almost like you have to realize that any kind of race, any runner, even if they're a professional, whether it's like ultra marathoners who are running a hundred miles, or it's the person who's doing the 5k to 3.1 mile race, they will always in every way say to you, anybody who's experienced mature in that will say, it's a wonder that I can get this done because even those who are well-skilled will get to a race and say, you know, they'll always, they'll have ones where they bonk out and say, I just couldn't do it today. It just didn't happen. And that is in some ways to reflect the fact that we are all in every way weak in all of our running, whether physical, spiritual, or emotional. And so what God does in a couple of different ways is he comes and he saves us from this idea that there is a distinction between all those things you just talked about. It's a definition without distinction that we have the father's electing love. We have Christ's merit and intercession. We have the indwelling of the Holy spirit. And then we have the covenant of grace. All these things come together in consummate unity and empower to propel us forward in this race of life in such a way that we will never make a shipwreck of our faith. So I actually think that we can, to your point, kind of make ourselves fall into this place. We did this great disservice by trying to set up a distinction. And maybe this is one of those things where it's better to not be particularly, to try to nuance this out. Because yeah. the truth is, I think some are listening to us and saying like, why are you guys even going on about this distinction? Because I just don't see it. That's good. That's fine. Yeah. Uh, and then there are some that are saying like, well, I want to quibble with you about the way in which you're kind of trying to apply this theology. But this is not the way Paul thinks. It's certainly not the way that he writes. And it's certainly not the way the scriptures give us to kind of understand what it means to be in faith with Christ, to be in Christ, and then to run this race all the way to the end. And I think what Mr. Honest is about in that particular chapter 27 of Pilgrim's Progress is the fact that what he's showing is that they are all the same. That, that I think that's exactly what he's getting after. Yeah. Yeah. I think if you want to understand why it is we are... I don't know, harping on this or, or landing on this. All you need to do is go to Twitter, which is not something I would normally suggest you do, even though I'm active <laughs> on Twitter. I think it's a cesspool of terrible theology and, and just verbal violence all the time. But go to Twitter and find Leighton Flowers' um, Twitter, which is Soteriology 101, which is a ridiculous moniker for a, a, a tag that totally misunderstands soteriology. But look at what he says and then how Calvin, internet Calvinists, uh, and I say that with understanding the irony of me being a Calvinist on the internet, but how internet Calvinists respond. So usually Dr. Flowers will say something like, Calvinism argues that um, you have no free will. And the Calvinists would be like, yeah, but that's fine. Like they, they just like lean into that. So mm. there's this there's this misunderstanding on one side that is actually shared by both Dr. Flowers, who is a, a radical provisionist Arminian, and I don't want to get into defining all those terms, but a radical provisionist Arminian, semi-Pelagian, full-on Pelagian, whatever you want to call them, who says Calvinism means there's no free will, that the human creature has no actual agency, that God, basically you're just puppets on a string. And then there's the internet Calvinist who usually has come up through someone like 
R.C. Sproul or Michael Horton, who's who's appropriated sort of the pop Calvinism of the day, who goes, yeah, but the reason that that's not okay for you to say is not because that's the wrong thing to say, but because you don't understand that's actually what the Bible teaches. This is what the Bible actually teaches. Philippians 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So pressing on is the perseverance of the saints. Christ Jesus has made me his own is the preservation of the saints. So while the pop internet Calvinist and the radical Arminian provisionist actually agree that God is basically just made us robots, that we just, Calvinism teaches that God just determines everything and that humans have no agency and that, you know, if you're saved, you're always saved because God's going to keep you in no matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you do. That's not actually Calvinism. That's hyper-Calvinism. On a technical, like a technical sense, that's hyper-Calvinism, that the, the natural means of perseverance have nothing to do with the divine intention of preservation. That's hyper-Calvinism. In reality, God, perse- God preserves the saints through their perseverance. Now, he's the one driving and empowering that perseverance. The Paul's pressing on to make it his own is undergirded divinely by Christ already having made him his own. But those two things are not in contradiction. It's right. not as though there's some sort of like pie of agency and God has a, a larger pie, a larger portion of the pie, but the part that Paul has is a, is just a slice that God doesn't have. That's what that's what pop Arminianism, that's what that's what Leighton Flower seems to think Calvinism is denying, right? Leighton Flowers is saying that God has the whole pie, or Leighton Flowers is saying that Calvinism says God has the whole pie, man has none of the pie. And the pop Calvinist on Twitter, who has really only gotten their their theology from renewing your mind, and that's not to slam on renewing your mind, it's a great ministry, but that's the only place they've gotten their theology from. And they're like, well, yeah, God has the whole pie. And actual Reformed confessional theology is saying, wait a second, like, this idea that God's God's agency and man's agency is somehow on the same tier or same level, such that if God has agency, man has no agency, or if man has agency, God has no agency, that's totally missing the point. The fact is that God has his own kind of agency, and that agency is what grants man the agency. So God preserves us by decreeing that we will persevere. And then right. we persevere because God has decreed it to be so. Right. But that doesn't mean that we do not persevere. It also doesn't mean that God doesn't preserve us. So I, I mean, we could we could just continue to like repeat preserve, persevere, preserve, persevere, and just like confuse the, <laughs> the heck out of ourselves. But the fact of the matter is that if you if you're looking at this, like Jesse said, if you're looking at this and you're going, I don't really understand why you guys are making a big deal out of this, and this feels really obvious, then praise God. You're one of the people. Amen out there who is appropriated Reformed theology, biblical theology, on a more deep level. But I think we all need to recognize there are a lot of people who are still kind of on this this pathway of coming to a more robust confessional biblical position who still believe or still are kind of in that mode of thinking that like either the rain falls because God made it fall or the rain falls because of physical forces and condensation. 
right. they're, they're drawing this distinction between these two things. When in reality, God makes the rain to fall through the process that he ordained of condensation. Well, God preserves the saints through the process that he has ordained of their perseverance. And I think just to sort of like round it out and put a final pin on it, there's also a means of preservation or a means of perseverance that God has ordained. So section three, I would encourage everybody to go to chapter 17 of the Westminster. I don't know the chapter off the top of my head, but I, I'm sure that the, the London Baptist has a similar or an almost identical chapter, probably chapter 17. But section three says, nevertheless, they may, through the temptation of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of the means of their preservation, fall into grievous sins, and for a time continue therein. So the Christian who is being preserved by God can also still at the same time neglect the means of perseverance and the means of preservation by which God has seen fit to preserve us in the faith. Most explicitly, it's the preaching of the, the law and the gospel on the Lord's day. It is possible for us to neglect that means of preservation and therefore lose the subjective experience of that preservation. It doesn't mean that we won't be preserved in the end. It doesn't mean that we won't persevere in the end. But this distinction, this contrast between God's preservation versus our perseverance is really actually quite artificial within the Reformed tradition. It's artificial to draw that distinction. It's not within the boundaries of what the Reformed tradition says. The chapter on the perseverance of the saints can speak of the means of preservation without any sort of like crossing their fingers behind their back or any sort of like double talk necessary. So I would just challenge and encourage people, go look at this and think about how do you conceptualize this relationship between the perseverance and the preservation of the saints. If you see them at odds with each other, there's a good chance you actually agree with the internet Arminian more than you agree with the the classic reform tradition. And that should give, I think, most of us a little bit of pause when we recognize that. I totally agree with that. So I'm going to try to bring us home. And here's what you should wait for is I'm going to try. Well, actually, God in his great providential <laughs> wisdom, I think, has brought together in the scriptures both your denial about the chosen with respect to Jesus and Moses and the conversation at hand. That's going to be my final comment. I'm going to let the scriptures have its final word. But let me say something just before we get there to really come alongside what you've said. I know you said it was a final pin. So let me put a pin in it, like right next to your pin on top of each other, like, you know. Robin Hood style, like one pin splitting another pin. It's a horrible metaphor. So it's not unlike, again, this physical idea of running. It's as if to say like, well, if you fueled well, that is if you've eaten like a good and supporting breakfast, you'll have run well. And then to get to the end and say, well, you ran well. So of course it means you must have eaten your breakfast. And we say like, yes, of course, that's exactly what we're saying. It's like the same thing. So this is what the Bible teaches is it stresses that our persistence in faith is based on God's preservation of grace in us. That is the jam. It's what led like the Puritans to say over and over again, that very same thing. And the the quote that comes to mind for me is from Thomas Watson, who famously said, it's not your holding God, but his holding us that preserves us. When a boat is tied to a rock, it is secure. So when we are fast tied to the rock of ages, we are impregnable. So this idea, of course, that like, will a boat be persistently tied to a rock when it's tied to a rock? Will it persevere in being tied to the rock? Will it be persistent in being tied to the rock? 
Yes. Yes. <laughs> and a thousand times. Yes. And so no matter which way you come at that very idea and that metaphor, you're finding that to be persistent is to be persevering. And of course, God does that thing in us. In other words, like I think you've said it already, we will be persistent when God has given us the promise that he will persevere by grace in us. That is just the truth. So here's the payoff. Here's Hebrews, the beginning of Hebrews chapter three, which brings all of these things together. So the author writes, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For of course, every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's household as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence in our boasting and our hope. Yeah. Yeah, that's um that's a good word. That's everything. It's everything. So that's the definitive word. Brothers and sisters, I know that we we kind of front loaded this with with other things and we sort of rushed through this. I would really encourage you to go and take a look at chapter 17 of the Westminster Confession because this is we're not going to do a specific episode in this ongoing series on the assurance of faith, not because it's not a worthy topic, but because that topic is coming up through all sorts of other other things coming in front of it. We talked about it in terms of good works and how good works are evidence that we believe, but not necessarily the grounds of our assurance. We've talked about right. it now that we can trust that if God has called us, he will preserve us. And that preservation happens by the means of our perseverance. So we're not going to talk about that specifically, but I would encourage you to go to chapter 17 and read it because there really is a lot of comfort available to us when we understand that if it's true, and this is the last thing I'll say before we we close here. If it's true that God's preservation happens through the means of our perseverance, and I think we've made a good argument that that's actually what the Bible teaches, right? Paul says he will press on and make it his own because Christ Jesus has already made it his own. There's no right contradiction between those two things. So if pressing on and making it his own is in some sense the means by which that is accomplished— and that is underwritten by the fact that Christ Jesus has already made it, made us his own. That's an immense source of comfort for our assurance, but it's also an immense source of motivation for us to continue to do the right hard on. work of being a Christian. So go read it. I'm not going to go into that further. We're going to get into a whole section as we go on about ethic, Christian ethics and what the Ten Commandments mean. And this is way down the road, but what the Ten Commandments mean and how that plays out in our lives. That's all coming down the road here. You're going to get the law, even as you hopefully have already gotten the gospel and will continue to get the gospel. But go read that because I think when we are faced with a decision to either persist in the faith or to fail to persist in the faith, we're faced with that decision many times in our lives, all the time in our life, whether it's a specific instance or just the general pressure to walk away from God that we feel on a daily moment, moment by moment basis. 
we have to make a decision to continue to persist in the faith. But as Christians, right. as those who are called by the Lord, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, for whom the Lord Jesus Christ has died to bring into his kingdom, if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Amen. And so that persistence, that perseverance of the saints is guaranteed by the preserving work of the Holy Spirit at the the command of the Father, the will of the Father, and the obtaining of the Son, the Holy Spirit preserves us in the faith. So, so take joy, take heed, take comfort, but also let's get to work, Christian. Like there's there's a there's holiness to be had. And although we don't sanctify ourselves, we are expected to strive after holiness. So let's get to work, I guess is the, the end game of this. Let's get to work because it's not just that the Lord Jesus has made us his own, but that we need to press on to make the Lord Jesus our own. And those two things aren't contradictory. It's really important to recognize that. So I, I don't know how to how to transition. <laughs> my, my my ability to make a transition is That's gone. That's it. I've spent all of my uh my all of my ability to to cleverly wordsmith into preparing for the Lord's Day tomorrow. So I guess we'll just go with like the fast God stuff end of it. That's it. Like, that's it. it Let's do it. I want to just launch into the tagline. So until next time, brothers and sisters, honor everyone. Go appreciate your pastors and love the brotherhood. (laughs) 